Hello friend. The Mystical American Patriot Society is transmitting to you from our secret ice fortress and laboratory high in the Swiss Alps. This is a variety program for normal sandwich eating Americans with some concerns about living in a deranged, post-Christian technocracy. Keep your third eye on the sky and your ear to the ground as Sumo and Smokestack direct your attention to a higher dimension. Are you ready? Stand by.
how is your how is your corpus callosum? Where did that rooster come from? Uh, that's Mike. Okay, he's my I rooster. Was like, I don't, interesting. How is your corpus callosum today? I mean, it, I gotta work on my. I gotta work on my, my recording. My I hear I always hear myself breathing too much. It's okay. Well, it just uh, adds to the intimacy of the piece. That's true. Know. Uh, that's true. It's, you got to reframe it. You got to philosophize it. You reframe it. Yep. Uh, I went for a haircut the other day. Oh yeah? How'd it turn out? It's fine. It's, I got it. I, my hair is still long, but now it looks long on purpose instead of just being homeless. Okay. That's probably a good move. <laughs> right. And now I, now I do the, uh, I have the, uh, the man bun thing. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a samurai. Sweet. Because I am. I think, mm-hmm. I think I, I think I, at this point I own that more than the Japanese do. Yeah. Um, and also it is my culture being a, an original hipster who still holds to hipsterism, even though it's no longer fashionable, making me the most hipster. Aren't well? Right? Aren't you? Aren't you more of a Ronin or Ronin? However you say it. I'm a Ronin hipster. Okay. I I ride my giant wheeled bicycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, for no master. Sure. For, for only my own, my own, um, for the great heaven. Yeah, yeah there you as, go. As it were. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the Zen master said, you know, he said, write no story for people. Write it for the great sky. Oh. And that's what I do with my bicycle, mm-hmm. my big giant bicycle and my flannel. Yeah. Uh, but I went, and so I hadn't had a haircut in like two years, you know, mm-hmm. which is a long time for a lot of people. I think. I think most people get a haircut more frequently than that. Yep. Um, but it's because, it wasn't because I was really want, like, going for looking homeless. It was because I was, uh, no one ever understands what I'm going for. Like, I go to the haircut place, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it doesn't matter who you get. Man cutter or, or lady cutter. They say, "What do we? What? They always, what do they ask you?" They say, "What kind of haircut do you want?" Right, exactly. And I would say something to the effect of, "Make it look like I should be wearing a puka shell necklace." Yeah, they're not going to get that. And they would they would stare at me blankly, and then be all flustered. Yeah, it's way too obscure. And so, well, then I would try to modify it and say, like, "Well, uh, make it look like I am a." I don't know, uh, a youth pastor who spent too long in on a mission trip uh, in Colombia. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand it, but, you know. Right, Exa- but see, yeah, but why couldn't I ever find someone that would understand it that would also could cut hair? And the thing is, I finally did. Oh. I found a lady, and I, I said, make it look like I can wear a puka shell necklace, and she said... I don't think that's the look you're going for. That's how she answered me. Mm-hmm. I said, really? Do tell. She said, I think you're going for more, um, more like cover band slash yoga teacher. Oh. And I said, you know what? You're right. This lady sounds really special. Yeah. I said, you know what? You are exactly right. And so she did that. And it was it was perfect, and so it took a long time though. She cut my hair for two hours. Wow, I know. I've never. Well, you got a lot of it. I do. 
I don't know. Um, yeah, but I better keep using her because she's the only one that ever underst- understood that phrase. Mm-hmm. And she also had a dog with her that had two different eyes. Okay. You know, one is one color, one's the other color. Yeah, those are cool. And I always thought that was, I thought that was some sort of sign. You know, like a Dances with Wolves thing. Yeah. But I don't know. You know, Dances with Wolves, if you think about it, is the same movie as The Last Samurai. Except, I guess The Last Samurai is the same, because The Last Samurai came second. I, I, in all honesty, have not seen either film. Well, they are. Just try, just one is Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. and the other is the other guy. And one is Indians in America, and the other is Samurai in Japan. Okay. But it's the same movie. Uh, they're both good movies, I think. Uh, both of them are about how ultimately the best the best uh, indigenous people is the white man that converts to it. Oh, I have seen Dances with Wolves. Right. And he gets the, the Indian wife and they burn his house yes. down. And yeah, that was, was yeah. a good movie. Yeah, it was a good movie because the, 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 the ultimate truth of both movies is that white people who appropriate other cultures do it the best. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, just like just like men that become women are better women than <laughs> women are, which is why we it's give not them the, woman of the year. <laughs> it, the ultimate story of the last ten years of culture is that whatever white men do is better than whoever was doing it. Well, look what we did for pizza. It, thank you. I mean, Italians, not white, by the way, Italians. Do not do pizza well. They just don't do pizza. It's true. I mean, if you've if you've been if you've been to Italy and had a pizza, it's awful. And actually, frankly, in most of in a lot of New York, it's not good. But Chicago is pretty good. Yeah. See. So that is the, that's the message, and that this, I felt that was the vibe I got from this lady and her two tone dog. So I'm going to keep going to her. So that was a big advancement in my life, is finding someone that can cut hair that understood what I was talking about. Yeah. So that's that's been good. Um, Glad I to hear like, it. Yes. Hmm? Uh, but how is your corpus callosum? Uh, it f- feels good so far. Still early in the day. Yeah? Yeah. Um, what is corpus callosum that's the, for our friends? That's like the lower bit of your brain, right? The middle bit? It's the middle bit. It's the middle bit of your brain that connects your two hemispheres. There together. we go. Yep. And I was thinking about corpus callosum recently, and this is not a full thought because t- today is a day for half thoughts because you're going to teach us how to survive in the soon-to-be nuclear apocalypse for all the people that have not listened to you thus far mm-hmm. and planted a garden or done anything yep. to... To as wheat prices surge mm-hmm. and they cannot afford bread, they will say, Why didn't I listen to Smokestack and actually do something? Yeah, it was dumb. And you're saying you should have already, but if you haven't, here is one last path so that you don't starve to death that they still will ignore. Yeah. They will still ignore it. And then when they die, they'll say, Ah, he was right. And that'll bring me will- a lot of satisfaction. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, and then we have an interview. We have our first interview on this show with someone that has a Wikipedia article, which I feel is a monument of some kind. Moving up in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Like, soon we'll have we'll have someone that someone's heard of. Mm-hmm. 
And that'll be nice. Yeah. Um, but we're going to have an interview with Ron Dart, who has a Wikipedia article, but I'm almost sure you've not heard of him. Uh, but he's a, he's a, um, he's a gentle soul and someone that I've learned from over the years. And I got him on because I recently learned that two big influences on me, Rupert Sheldrake, who we've talked about on the show Mm -hmm. and also C.S. Lewis. Yeah. We're both, uh, we're both very, very good friends. In fact, one might say best friends with a third guy who started a Christian ashram in India named Father Bede. <laughs> and that and that and that uh Ron Dart was actually in communication with Father Bede and wrote a book about the friendship between Father Bede and C.S. Lewis. And arguably, arguably, in fact, from their letters, C.S. Lewis indicates that Bede is his best friend wow. in the whole world. More than Tolkien. But no one ever knows about this guy. And uh he dedicated his book "Surprised by Joy" to Father Bede, mm-hmm. and Father Bede came all the way from India to be with him in his last months when Lewis was dying. Wow! And uh, so, Bede really this and uh, and Bede was a student of Lewis's. He was slightly younger, and so this guy has really had a big impact on my life. I didn't realize it, and so I wanted to explore who this fellow was. And what they were about. Because he arguably is... Lewis said that, that Bede was his chief companion on his conversion to Christianity. And then Rupert Sheldrake also came back to religion from Father Bede. So without the, without Father Bede, arguably two of the largest influences on my life would not have ever converted. Wow. So I decided to explore this fellow. And uh, Ron Dart is a Canadian. Um... He agreed to do the show, I think, before he listened to the show. Yeah, that's how we get him. Yeah, you got to get him. So he was a little, I detected like a hint of nervousness, maybe, mm-hmm. because he was, he may have listened to a bit of the show and heard me screaming about how uh, astronauts don't wear diapers. Right. Well, he, he can, he can disavow us. That's fine. We won't. Yeah, that's fine. And it's, I, and maybe not, he may not have listened to the show at all. I just, mm-hmm. I, I may just be paranoid, which is valid. Um, he, he may not have listened at all. He may not care at all, but, uh, he's a very, he's a, he's a scholar in the old way of being a scholar. Like, I feel like we are scholars in the new way of being scholars, Mm -hmm. which is where anything that someone puts in print, you go, no. Yeah. Right. We're postmodern scholars. Well, I think we're even post postmodern. Yeah. That's probably more accurate. I think I think that's more accurate because we deconstruct their yeah. deconstruction. So postmodern back. scholars make stuff up. Post postmodern scholars scoff at it. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. And then, um, and so, but he uh, is, but but nonetheless, he's very knowledgeable in the old way of being a scholar, and knows a lot about Lewis and Bede and the Inklings and all that stuff. So I asked him about some of that stuff. And it was good. He's also a mountaineer. Um, Sweet. So it's fun to talk about. Uh, he still does mountaineering, even though he's in his seventies now, is which is interesting. Awesome. But so we'll do that. But my first half thought is this: I want to talk about the Corpus Callosum and an, and an Apple TV show called Severance. Ooh, okay. Are you familiar with the show Severance? No, but is it about um, is it about craniotomies or something? 
Well, yes, but also no. Ooh. Um, I don't think I don't think most people realize that that is the connection. But so, well, first of all, your corpus callosum is this weird thing, right? It's you have two. Well, first of all, do you ever talk to yourself? Mm, sometimes. You go, hmm, smokestack. What should we do right now, or something like that? Yeah, it's usually if I've done something stupid, and I say something like, "That was stupid, you big dummy." That's usually right. <laughs> that's usually. Right. Is it possible that that is one of your consciousnesses arguing with the other part of your con- another consciousness? Um, hmm. Is it possible? Yes, it's probably possible. Because I've, I, I think there's strong evidence that you have, uh, that people have at least two consciousnesses in their heads. Is this an ego id sort of division or is this something else? This is something else. Yeah. This is like, uh, because you have two hemispheres of your brain, right? Yeah. Okay. Right and left. And they're only physically connected by the corpus callosum. Okay. Which is this long, thick, sort of organic wire thing that, that connects the two. Mm-hmm. But, but, some people that have seizures, very bad seizures, the cure is to sever the corpus callosum so that the hemispheres are no longer connected. Okay. And, interestingly, they go on to live fairly normal lives. So you would think, like, well, that's a bit weird. You cut your brain in half, and it doesn't do very much. Yeah, I mean, you know? that is weird. It's strange. Not ex- not what I would expect. Now, there are some notable problems. For example, and I'm not going to get this exactly right because it's been a while since I looked at the specifics, Mm -hmm. but this is in general correct. One hemisphere of your brain is connected more to your visual visual inputs. Yep. And another is to your auditory. And then one of those that's connected to your visual is connected to either your mouth or your hands. I forget which one. And the other one's connected to the other one. So just for the sake of argument, let's say it's eyes and hands. I think this is true. Mm-hmm. And mouth and ears. That makes sense, right? That they would be connected because you you have um, hand-eye coordination and also ear-mouth coordination. So that makes sense. Okay. So if you take someone that has had this surgery to separate their brain halves and you say, uh, look... I'm going to write on a piece of paper a word, let's say, or or I'm going to show you a picture of something, Mm -hmm. and I want you to tell me what it is. And you hold up like a picture of an orange. You say, what is this? All of them will go, I don't know. You don't know what it is? Like, no. They don't seem that upset about it. It's like, I'm not sure. They say, can you write down what you think it is? And you give them a pen and they write orange on a piece of paper. Oh, freaky deaky. Whoa. Right. Yeah. Because the part, their their eyes can still communicate with their hands, but their, but their, their mouth doesn't get the input from the eyes. That's weird that they would answer, I don't know, instead of right. just being unable to speak the word. Exactly. Exactly. And some, some of them, yeah, well, some of them, they lose what that's called the ability to, um, Automatic speaking, okay, or speaking spontaneously, uh-huh. 
And so it, it's like one it's like one consciousness in their brain cannot get to their mouth, but knows what it's looking at. Oh. But can express it through the hands. But the other consciousness cannot see it because it doesn't have eyes. But it's still like hearing that the stuff coming in and is able to speak. Whoa. So the longer one lives after having this surgery, the different the two parts of their brain have different knowledge bases and can't Correct. share can't share them with each other and the, that knowledge is only accessible via certain means right but not others so so it's it's strange because as long as they are going about the world this doesn't present too much like you can drive a car and your eyes the your consciousness that sees you with your eyes can use your hands to avoid obstacles mm-hmm and the others, this is this, and this is probably why you can drive and listen to a podcast like this wonderful podcast now, because the part that what the consciousness that is listening to the podcast is a different consciousness than the one that is driving the car, and right? and they just communicate with each other as needed, as needed, correct. So you've got this is why some things are like this is why listening to a podcast, but also carrying on a conversation is almost impossible. Right. Because that's the same consciousness. So you can but you can you can do right. two things at the same time because one is handled by one half of your brain and the other is handled by the other half. And if one distracts the other, it's because for some reason the one half has required the resources of the other half. Correct. But so it's it's fascinating that you can sever this connection between the halves and yet they still operate. They have. They appear to have two separate consciousnesses going on in the head, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because one is fully capable of its own things, and the other, but they can't talk. And so this has always been a. This has been a. Um, I think that's a hint of how reality works, because existence is relationship. Like I've I've talked about that once long ago, but like if you had a single ball out in space, is it moving? Is it not moving? What's it doing? Where is it? You can't tell. Yeah. There's but as soon as you have two, now you can relative to one another, you can define motion, you can define growth, you can define so you need I think this is like the Taoist idea that you have to have that the one must manifest as two polarities, which is probably why Christianity has always insisted on the Trinity because mm-hmm. you can't have, if you have one thing like, and this is how I argue with Muslim people about God. They'll be like, God is one. Like, yes, God is one, but one must be expressed in at least two, maybe three. And I suspect if we learn more, we'll find that we have three sorts of consciousnesses somehow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in the in the in the one person. So you're actually. You yourself are a mirror of the divine and that you are multiples in one. But I believe one of the one of the one of the purposes of the of, of the evil world of Babylon, as the Rastas would say, is to try and separate you into your halves mm. and to keep you from being whole. And that 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 ultimately is sort of what hell is, is when you are, and they do it. So, so this, the TV show severance 
Here's the basic premise. It's a new show. It's I think it's only got three episodes out now or something. It's on Apple TV. Uh, Matt from Quantum was talking about it, and I agree with him that there's no... It's got four episodes out. That there's no reason to watch the show as it is slow and not very good. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not worth getting Apple TV for. But it has it has its central premise. An interesting idea. So the idea is that there are these people at this corporation who volunteer for a brain procedure. And the brain procedure puts a chip inside your brain. So that when you're at work, you have total... You completely forget everything outside of work. Like, you have no memory of what your name is outside of work, if you have a family or not, where you live. What's They're all inside this office room, so like what they're even, what state they're even in mm-hmm. is not, they don't know none of it. They don't know what they did last night, anything. But the minute they walk out the door at five o'clock, the chip switches and they have full knowledge and memory of who they are outside and no knowledge whatsoever of work or anything that happened. Oh, man. Okay. Right. And so this is volu- the all these people have volunteered for this because it appears on the surface to many people to be an attractive option. Because they're like, well, I don't take my work home with me. I can't. I don't answer any emails. I don't have any stress about it. Right? There's nothing. that, that w- I never even really know what's happening. You know? Would, does this sound attractive to you? No. Kill it. Me Kill neither. It with fire. Me neither. But a lot of people, I think, uh, would initially be attracted by this deal. Uh, because there's been movies made in this vein in the past. Like, there was the one with Adam Sandler where he had a remote control and he could fast forward through the boring parts of his life. Mm-hmm. I think it was called Click or something. Yeah. It's a similar idea, right? But, okay. But... Um, as it happens in the show, what you realize is that, um, and it's pretty obvious if you, if you think about it for five seconds before signing up for a a brain chip procedure, which most people would not do in real life, Mm -hmm. right? They would not, we've seen that they will sign up for anything that is pushed as good. Um, just because, uh, that the person in, they almost they become two different uh, people, two different entities because one has never has knowledge of the other one. Interesting. Okay. And so, like from the perspective of the one inside the work, he goes to leave at five o'clock. He opens the door, and the next thing he knows, he's walking back in the door. So he never leaves. He's just always there. Right. He's always awake. He's always there. He's like he never sleeps. He never has anything outside. He doesn't know who he is, right? And from the one on the outside, it's the same thing. He goes into work, but then he just opens the door, and the next thing he knows, he's walking back out. <clears throat> and so, it ex- and so you think that that it's you, but it isn't because the one at work is like, "Well, I'm not having fun outside of work. I'm trapped here forever." And the other person uh, never does anything. That is, uh, you know, not like hanging out. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I think that that is sort of what modern work culture is actually going for. Like, that's what they try to accomplish. They just don't have a brain chip yet. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people, 
if they don't feel that way, they certainly are forced to act that way. Yeah, yeah. Like leave leave home at at the door. Right. And I believe that that is the source of a lot of discontentment in the. But they're they're trying to separate this idea that that the world is is trying to separate you into two to keep you from being a whole person and separate you into two halves is I think true in the source of a lot of discontentment and also maybe on a spiritual level what is trying to is trying to keep you from being your completely divine self by preventing the uh complete union of of both of all sides of you right you know which is what we're trying to get to but that's just a small thought i haven't developed that very much do you have any thoughts on corpus callosum before we talk about how to plant your victory garden well i think i think you're you're onto something about work culture and and the disintegrated personality that it creates i i yeah I, I'm, basically I've freud people that i mean suffer from integration this. Yeah. i'm I I see myself as a successor to Carl Jung, I think. That's fair. Sure, yeah. Uh Yeah, I I but I don't think he ever thought about that. I think he was sort of a normie mm-hmm. in that way. Okay, so I let our listeners can carry that forward cuz we don't we don't have time to explore it today and I haven't thought about it fully, but I I wanted to bring that up as just a sort of uh imagining of what's really going on here and especially in our brains mm-hmm. but oh but also though think about this the fact that you can still operate as a normal mostly normal human being with some quirks uh i can't, i have to imagine that actually that the two halves of the brain are communicating in some way beyond physical then mm-hmm. if they can be separate and you don't just like completely become dysfunctional yeah there must be some level on which they communicate that isn't just a neuron. Maybe that's through the body itself. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's through, because, I mean, I guess at some level, <clears throat> the one hemisphere is connected down through neurons to your body, and the other is connected down through neurons to your body, and at some level those would touch, mm-hmm. just not in the head. But they, but they must be communicating in a way hitherto not understood. I've, Maybe a non-physical way. I've been long convinced that there's a the the brain mind thing is incomplete without consideration that there is sort of a um a a spiritual dimension to the the brain as an organ itself, um and probably some sort of um coincident uh spiritual organ with the brain that we cannot perceive uh, with our limited ability. Yeah, I agree. And I think it may be, I think that I, I hinted at this in a recent Gum Road. I think that what you're describing may be the EMF fields of the brain, like the. Yeah. That may be the non physical portion of the. That may be the mind, how the mind interfaces with the brain. And I think that would be a very. Uh, well, I'm blanking on dude's name. Um, the. The. The guy we talked about when we were talking about Lewis, his other influence. Oh, oh, uh, Sheldrake. Sheldrake. That's a very Sheldrakean sort of concept, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. Okay, but, so the world is headed for World War Three, allegedly, <laughs> again. Yep. 
And the Ukraine is uh, still not doing great. Putin has the Infinity Gauntlet mm. and the Death Eaters. Yep. And Ukraine Awards is being defended mm-hmm. by Jedi's and Spider Man. <laughs> and but it's not enough it's not. because he can still snap his fingers. Yep. So, uh, what? If this if the situation spirals out of control, because people scream, no fly zone enough to where people feel pressure to do it, even though no one understands that that would mean shooting down Russian jets and causing a direct conflict. Mm-hmm. And also that if they were to do that, people seem to imagine that it would just be fighting Russia and that China wouldn't instantly jump on board and also fight with Russia. Which I don't understand why people don't realize that. Yeah. Do you, what? What is why? Why do people not understand that that was what, like people? They really do think it would be like Iraq again, where it would be like, and they would just. But no, like if you were to fight Russia, China would also get involved, and it would India, and would Iran, and it would be a whole thing. Well, I think most normie Americans have no concept of the different abilities to project military power between Afghanistan and China. Or Russia, for that matter. Yeah. Like the, it, there's their scale isn't big enough for how different the power levels are of those countries. Yeah, and I think that's why the propaganda has been so dangerous because they keep saying Putin's being humiliated. He's got a safe face. Like, right. No, he's not. He's been doing fine. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? He's taken the country in pretty quick time. Mm-hmm. Like, let. He's surrounded Kiev now, allegedly, according to reports. Well, the trains are still running in and out, as of the 5th, anyway. Yeah. I saw an interesting uh, uh, write-up on that. Some some guy, like, traveled there and took the train to Kiev and walked around Kiev and all that stuff. Well, yeah, because he's been taking it without murdering all the civilians as is our MO. Right, Where yeah. when When America takes Iraq... They bomb the hell out of everything mm-hmm. and let everyone die, and they march in, and it still takes them a month. Yeah. And what Russia is doing is largely not attacking anything civilian at all. Yeah. The electricity still on. Well, I mean, they could. They are. They have the power plants. They could disconnect them, well, I, but they have not. I think it's still an open question as to whether all of Russia's objectives are going to be completed in Ukraine. But uh-huh. I don't think it's up for debate by any serious person that. So far, they've been proceeding uh, at a very quick pace. They've been proceeding at a quick pace, but also at a pace where they're not, they have, they appear to be pretty concerned with civilian casualties. Thus far. I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's going to last because I think part of it in the beginning, they wanted, they wanted to see if they could convince um, Ukrainian military people to defect. Yes, um, I agree. I think they were trying to get them, I think they were. I think thus far they've been trying to um, persuade. Yeah, and if they and if they give up on that, if they realize it's not working, and they give up on that, then you'll see the levels of violence probably increase. Yeah, I think that's a, probably a, a good uh, prediction because they. But yeah, so. But anyway, normie people don't like. They think that we could just attack Russia and then like. China would have to get involved mm-hmm. because Russia's their biggest help against us. Yeah. And if we took out Russia, then they would be alone against basically the Western power. And they would ha- they'd have to. 
Well, this and then also India would too, and it would be this whole giant thing. Like they're, I don't understand what people are talking about. But but let's say that does happen. Yeah. How do you? How, what advice do you have for the people that have been lazy and have not started their garden or have garage rabbits well, <laughs> like I never did? Well, so this this is. Uh... This is the good intro to a two-part series, maybe even three-part series that we're going to do on mm-hmm. uh, surviving World War III. And so, and okay, I'm talking because I would like—I think most of us would like to survive World War III. Yeah, yeah, it's a good goal. Everybody should should go for that. I don't—I don't really buy it when people say they're going to just, you know, have their little Alamo moment and go out in a blaze of glory. No, everybody wants to live. So if you, but you have to take serious. And, and also, in most cases, it would be really stupid. Yes. Like, let's say, let's say China's rolling across Iowa. Yeah. What are you gonna? You're gonna like ah yeah. Yeah, you're just gonna run at them. And you go, you ha- you go ping at a tank with your. Th- it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't it work. Do anything. Like, let's be realistic. <laughs> Nobody's gonna. Okay. Anyway, that's a different yeah. rant. But I think we're gonna do maybe a multi-part series on on survival, and we're calling this. Uh, World War Three supply chain collapse survival prep for slacker dum dums, and so this is oh good that's a good name. <laughs> this is for those of you that have done nothing or very little, and now feel like I'd better get engaged. And the first the first because and depending on your station in life and where you live, your strategies are going to be vastly different. And so we're going to address them first. We're going to talk to the urbanite. Okay. So let's do, let's evil. define urbanite. Well, no, no, they're not evil. They're dumb because, well, we'll get into that. But um, they've made some mistakes. They've made some questionable life choices. Uh, but I still want them to live. And I know that there's some in our audience, uh, and you're about to be um, castigated for your foolishness. But I still want you to live. So here's some advice for you. So first, we're going to define we're going to define urbanite. You live in a densely populated city, and the resources. <laughs> For the people that, for you and the people that live around you, are brought into that city from outside it. Uh, you don't have access to land where you can grow your own food. You don't probably don't have any productive capacity within your household. So you're primarily a consumer. You go to work, you get a paycheck, you spend paycheck. Um, you're not capable or interested in making things, uh, and you probably can't in your tiny apartment. Um. And then you don't have family or community connections with your nearest neighbors. They're just there's just people all around you. Uh, the people you have relationships with are either online or through some some other thing that you're a part of that you have to commute to. Sometimes long commutes. Um, there's no like physical community. And then your material needs and your paycheck all come from giant corporations. There's not there's not some farmer somewhere where you can go buy your meat like we can out in out in the the boonies. So that's your that's your situation. Mm-hmm, All right. Mm-hmm. So I understand why some of you feel like you're stuck in the city and can't leave and, and you're unprepared and you see this thing coming. I like I understand why you're there. There's somebody you can't leave behind. There's a relationship. There's a relative you're taking care of. Some of you have a good reason for being in the city. And I respect that. Others of you are there for the money and the uh, international dining choices. And I don't now, I don't feel sorry for you. At what point in World War Three do you abandon your elderly relatives in the nursing home and just say, look. Well, I'm going to say, was, I'm going to say never. You never abandon them. Um, ne- okay, you never. You, you just put them on the wagon, in the back of the station wagon, you run If you got to throw them in a wheelbarrow, that's what you got to do. That's, that's, okay. these are, I'm going through my starting assumptions. So survival mm-hmm. for you is going to look completely different than survival for a rural person oh, or a, oh, wait. yeah. What 
What, at what point do you become a Ukrainian and actually eat your own children? Oh, no, dude. Are you... Because that's how they handled joking. the last crisis. Yeah. And Putin Putin mocked them for this. I, he did, did, take, he did take a shot at them over that. Um, yeah, because they deserve it because the Ukrainians are disgusting people. <clears throat> and I'm not defending Russia in this conflict. I'm just saying it's, it, the Ukrainians... <laughs> it's perfectly okay to be disgusted with both sides. Well, I don't know that I'm disgusted with both sides. Uh-huh. I don't, I'm not disgusted with Russia. Mm-hmm. I don't know that what they're doing is correct. Right. But it's like normal. Mm-hmm. Invading another country is pretty normal historically. But the Ukrainians with Holodomor, <laughs> I mean, they're just, ugh. So, like, ugh. Just starved to death. How could you eat? Did they really yeah, Did what, they really eat their babies? I mean, is that? That's what they say. That and they frame it as a. It's like this it's is like a, this, it, was it was so, so bad. bad what the Soviets did to us. It's like yeah, it was, but you still didn't have to eat your baby, right? And so every time I see a Ukrainian, I go ugh. <laughs> that is a basket case like country. <laughs> someone says I'm a Ukrainian. I'm, ugh. Ugh. Yeah, I'm sorry, but yeah, yeah. So let's, okay, let's keep that in mind as we discuss the Ukrainians sure. because they are baby eaters. You're you're d- they're cannibals. We're never gonna get through this segment. At this, I'm rate. sorry. I, okay, continue. Um, survival for urbanite is going to be completely different for a rural or su- uh, suburban person. So we're going to address them separately. Um, now one more caveat. If you have family or friends in a rural or suburban area that will take you in when it comes time to leave and we'll go over when it comes time to leave, what that looks like. Um, your all your planning needs to be focused on that. That is way that is a way better option than than what we're about to go into now. Um, there are no good options for the urban survivalist. Let's just this is all bad news. <laughs> so if you have a buddy mm-hmm. there of or an aunt that lives out in the country, your plans need to focus on getting to her. And the stuff we're going to go over will also be helpful in that end. But that's not going to be uh, my my starting assumptions are you live in the city and you're stuck living in the city. Um, you don't have anywhere to go. Um. And the good news is that you're going to be the last, the city dwellers are going to be the last people to suffer austerity and deprivations and collapse of the supply chain. Because like the human body, when it's suffering blood loss, it's going to redirect blood to the brain and the heart and away from the extremities, right? And so you're in a, you live in a critical place to the larger society, government power structures and all that. And so you'll be one of the last ones to suffer. The bad news is that um, you will quickly trade all of your personal dignity and liberty for safety and calories. That that will happen mm-hmm. early on. As soon as rationing sets in, uh, as soon as you have to um, uh, be interacting with government distributed resources in order to live, your your Second Amendment rights are going to be taken away. You're going to be forced to take injections. You're going to have to scan your ID. I mean, it's it's going to be full, full control. Like your rights are gone. You you won't have any. Mm-hmm. Um, and then more bad news. If the city does start to actually collapse and the food stops coming in, you're going to be caught in the middle of a World War Z type situation. But there's no helicopter coming to pick you up. So it's okay in the beginning, but it gets really bad. Um, so your goal, what's what's your goal here? Cities are networks and nodes for resources and labor distribution. You can't survive very long if your node fails, okay? 
If your node fails, you need to get on another functional node before the chaos overtakes you. That's your goal. Mm. Your node, okay, your so nodes to, yeah, failed. Okay. You got to get to another node somehow. You cannot stay in a dead node. So you have to think of cities. The cities and civilization is a network, right? And if if you think about a an IT situation, a server farm or whatever, if one of those um, servers fails, resources are redistributed to to other servers, right? And so you're saying you're saying if the corpus callosum of the network of distribution of the nation is set, mm-hmm. you have to get to the other side. See how it all yes, makes sense? Yes, yes. You've got to get okay. on a new yeah. node. So this is going to happen. This situation is going to happen in phases. Um, the first phase of it, we're going to call controlled austerity. Uh, in this phase, the government and corporation complex keeps your node supplied with goods, uh, but there will be shortages you have to deal with. And so the way you prep for this is is not complicated. You need to hoard up rice, beans, water, canned goods, and other essentials to last you through supply interruptions because it's not going to be it's not going to flow perfectly. You're going to survive, but there are things you can do that are pretty obvious um, that will help smooth that over. Learn how to repair things, learn home economics, learn how to cook using basic ingredients. Thrift is key in this phase one of controlled austerity. Um, Practice weekly by experimenting with meals based on dried grains, beans, butter, flour, things that would come in your your war ration kit. Um, A lot of that is going to be dried grain based. Um, So go ahead and start learning to cook with those to make something palatable out of it. Uh, now also during this phase and in wartime, there is going to be, uh, intelligence, counterintelligence and espionage operations going on all around, especially in cities because cities are important. They've got all the infrastructure in them. They keep the war machine going. So you are living very close to targets of both, uh, military and intelligence attack. So in this time, you need to keep your incorrect opinions to yourself, uh, and be wary of strangers. Now, phase two, this is where it gets hairy, node failure. In this phase, resources and energy have failed in your node because of enemy action or reallocation of scarce resources. So it might be the government just decides to cut your city off uh, because somewhere else is more important to them. Or it could be because the supply lines are actually cut by some sort of attack. Uh, Unlike suburban or rural areas, human life cannot be sustained via local efforts and natural resources. You are now a refugee. Your goal is to get on uh, a good node. Get on a, get to a node as fast as you can. So, to prep for this, you need to be training cardio, carrying weight, and some kind of a fighting discipline. Robbery and rape are your main threats. Uh, we're not going to talk about nukes. Say robby, robbery and rape? Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. un- uncontrolled chaos, scared people, uh, and people taking advantage of it. So robbery okay. and rape, that sort of thing. That, that those are those are the main threats you need to worry about. If if nukes are real and one goes off in your city, I mean, you can learn about nuke survival somewhere else. I feel like that ground has been tread pretty well. Um, yeah, we did shows about. Yeah, that. so we're we're gonna skip over like radiation and all that stuff. We're we're talking about dealing with with other humans and the other dangers that I feel like often get kind of left out of this scenario. So whether or not your your city is nuked. You, you, you're going to have to de- be dealing with these things more than you're going to have to be dealing with radiation, probably. Um, now, if you have a car, 
you need to stash some extra fuel in durable leak-proof containers along with tire repair kit and some other items needed to make expedient repairs. Also a hose for siphoning gas. You need to be able to keep your car running. That's a very valuable resource. And it may be taken from you at some point, uh, but as long as you've got it, make sure you can keep it running. So like those military-style jerry cans you can get online, those are great. I've got a bunch of those. Keep them in the trunk of your car. They don't leak. Um, just make sure you buy the nozzle. Um, now, you, uh, you're also going to need a crew of trustworthy people. If you don't have that, if you don't have at least two or three other people that you know that you guys can work together, you're going to have bad time. Like, this is not a good time to be alone. Um, so you need to find some relationships, and you guys need to at least talk about this and agree we're going to meet up and we're going to stick together to try to overcome this. Uh, you're going to need a team. Now, part of that is you're going to have to find out where the FEMA camps are. Here's the thing about I, me and Alex Jones disagree about the FEMA camps. FEMA camps are going to, nobody's going to be rounded up and arrested and put in a FEMA camp. FEMA camps are going to open the doors and urbanites are going to rush into them. They will be trampling each other to get there because that's where the food that's, is. Oh, that's what I said before. You People get on the trains voluntarily. Yes. They always go to the concentration. And I know Jews are like, Meh, because they've been taught to be uh, uh, reflexive about anything about Auschwitz, even though none of them went to Auschwitz that are like living yeah. today. And for someone that's really old, uh, they've been just like, just like black people have been taught to reflexively scream things about slavery, even though they don't know what historical slavery was. Uh, but in fact, you do, you did get on the trains to go to Auschwitz voluntarily. Now it didn't seem voluntarily because like, it was like, well, I have to go there. Or I won't have food, but like no one held a gun to them and like rounded them. Right. Up. And, and that's mostly fiction that, that happened maybe a tiny bit somewhere most so yeah and so most people will most urbanites when this situation happens will go to the fema camps voluntarily and they will deserve and i don't you know you don't have to go if if you're prepared you can you can exist outside for at least for a while um and i don't know what horrors or or just mundane life awaits in fema camps i don't know if they're going to turn into some nightmare i mean usually there's in any sort of refugee camp there's going to be crime and rape going on. I mean, look at look so, at the Astrodome after Hurricane Katrina, if you want to learn about right. what a FEMA camp is going to be like. It's not going to be a yeah, fun and place. Like, and that's the same thing with like the camps in Germany and, the, and frankly, the camps in the United States, because we put not only the Japanese into camps, but also the mm-hmm. Germans. Um, is that usually they are not opened with the intent on it becoming a death camp. Yeah. Usually they're opened with the intent on keeping people there who are for some reason unable to be out on their own. They don't have the food. They don't have the whatever. Mm-hmm. Or they are deemed not good for society in some way and they need to be put here till they go somewhere else. Yep. Most of the time, including in the German case, it was not intended when they were built. Or they have COVID and they need to go mm-hmm. here. It was not intended to be built to kill people. But what happens is... That's always part of when you start doing that civilization is already spiraling. And so you go to this place and you're in there and you, if you happen to be an unlucky person that's there in the final stages of the spiral, food stops coming, the everything stops coming and it becomes a giant starvation death camp violent. 
It's not a good right. place to be. It's fine. It's it's usually usually like the people put the Japanese internment camps or the German ones in the U.S. were released. Yeah, and they were fed and they played. It's because we won, you know. <laughs> but but if right, we lose, we won. had we had we been losing, <laughs> if the Germans were here, see when we were doing, there would have been Japanese death camps. Yeah. because they would we wouldn't have wanted to let them out because they might go help the Japanese. But also, we don't have food anymore, and the food we do have needs to go to our soldiers and the civilians, not to the people in the camp. So, see how it works. And that's how this will work also, if it gets that bad. Right. Right. Okay. Um, So, you don't have to go to the FEMA camp. Um, You can try to go make it out on your own, but you're going to need some stuff. Um, Whether or not you have a car, you need to get all this gear if you want a shot at getting to another node and not having to go to the FEMA camp. Um, you need to be mobile on your feet uh, with the basics of survival. At minimum, you need a sturdy backpack. Okay. Now, this thing should have lots of complicated pockets because you're going to want to hide stuff in there. One of the one of the things you're going to face, you can have guns and you know tomahawks and all all, all kind of weapons to defend yourself against robbery. But if you enter into any government facility to get food or shelter you will be searched and your weapons will be taken from you okay so if you want to hang on to those weapons you're going to have to be self-sustaining you're going to have to scavenge you're going to have to break into buildings you're going to have to do be able to do a lot of stuff um if you want to maintain the ability to protect yourself nobody in uh the astrodome was was allowed uh to take weapons in right uh in in new orleans they were you know confiscating people's weapons all over the place because they don't want anybody to be armed. They don't care if you, if they're taking away your ability to defend yourself, their only concern is how do we keep this from spiraling, spiraling out of control from a, like a society management standpoint. And that's why, I mean, it's the same idea that most cops, even though that they think they're, they would say that they're defending people's liberty and freedom uh, by doing the job of being a cop. They're also pro gun control. Because that sort of thinking eventually overtakes, and if they choose order or freedom, if they choose between order and freedom, they're going to choose order. And the choose order impulse will be in full effect, so keep that in mind. Um, Now, you're going to need a sturdy backpack uh, capable of hiding contraband. You can modify it and put some secret pockets in there, but you need to be able to hide things that would otherwise be confiscated if your bag was searched. Um, hiking shoes appropriate to the climate and extra socks. You're going to be walking way more than you've ever walked in your life with weight. Okay. Unless you're, unless you're a regular backpacker, this is going to be a huge adjustment for you. So you need to make sure you've got some good shoes. Uh, Merrill boots are great. They're, they're easy to break in. They're not going to tear your feet up, um, like a stiffer boot will, um, their Moab series of boots is, uh, I can't say uh, enough good things about them, especially if they're brand new and you're out there in the first time, um, get some good hiking socks. You'll be in good shape, but you do need to, ideally you've been training. Uh, you also need layers of clothing that you can shed or take on and off depending on the conditions. If you get, uh, stuck outside somewhere. And again, if, if you're in a government shelter, you've been searched and your weapons have been taken away. So if it's important to you, 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 you need to have a way of protecting yourself from exposure. Look at what's going on. Watch the, watch the stuff from Ukraine. All these people are lined up. They're moving on feet. They're waiting for transportation outside. Um, 
th- these people are not they're they're outside a lot and they're walking a lot. This will be you too in this situation. Uh, Can I recommend a book called "Fixing Your Feet" by John Von Hoff? Well, wow, that sounds handy. It's an it's an entire book just about like dealing with blisters from having to walk or run too much, dude. Like keeping your and like or hiking a lot. Mm-hmm. Like he hiked a lot of like the Appalachian Trail and stuff, and it was. A, it's just it's just a book about fixing your feet. Yeah. Like I don't want to get that book. That's like that is super super important if you have to walk a lot. Your feet will become destroyed. True. If you haven't done yep. this, like you will be after the first couple of days, especially if the, your feet get wet, mm-hmm. you're gonna have real problems walking. Yeah, if you if you like you don't if, people yeah. don't anticipate that. <laughs> Absolutely, you, your feet will get destroyed, and you are you're down. Absolutely, yeah. so you got to keep your I would feet dry. This book actually. That would be one of my main things of your survival kit is this book fixing your feet. Yeah, I'll I'll link that in the show notes. Yeah, uh, but that that is that is a huge deal, and we could probably do a whole segment on just how to care for your feet. But you can research that elsewhere because I want to keep moving through this. Um, but that that might be the most important thing in this list. Um, some means to protect yourself uh, that you can realistically use. Don't go buy a gun if you're not going to train with it. All, that that's just a liability for you. Um, you'd be better off if you if you can't train with a gun. You'd be better off just carrying um, uh, a pipe or some kind of blunt weapon to hit start to strike with because everybody knows how to strike with a blunt object, right? Yeah. Um, but it, whatever you decide to use, you you really need to train with it. Um, you need to carry at least two liters of water in hard bottles. And have purification tablets. That's another thing they're dealing with in Ukraine right now is this lack of clean water. All these people are displaced from these cities that have been taken over. They're out on the road. Um, there's no access to clean water. So if you can just get some ditch water and throw some purification tablets in it and drink it, you're going to be a lot better off than somebody who's got now is out on the road and now has dysentery or um, some other waterborne disease because they didn't have the ability to purify their water. Um, you'll need expedient rations. These aren't, this isn't, you're not packing food to survive on all the time. You're packing enough calories to give you energy to walk from one node to another, or at least get to some transportation somehow. Um, so that's like, you know, energy dense cliff bars and stuff like that. Um, something with, with protein and fat in it and sugar, just like raw energy to get you to get you over the hump till you can get to a, a functioning node. Um, here's another thing that gets overlooked is you need tools to make entry or exit of locked buildings. Um, the methods you want to focus on are cutting, prying, shimming, and picking. And you'll have to practice, especially with picking. It does take practice, but anybody can learn it. Um, but you're, you may find yourself in the situation where you're locked in somewhere like a FEMA camp, and you really want to get out, and you'd be doing a lot better had you hid um, a hacksaw blade in your backpack and got it into yeah. the camp. Like you, you might be able to get out that way. So you need to think about that. Is if you get in a situation, you now regret have those tools. And of course, you know you can look up basic survival bug out bag type tools: Swiss Army knife, flashlight, big lighters. Uh, big lighters will be worth their weight in gold in this scenario. Uh, and guess what? You've got to sleep. Um, so if you can carry a bedroll of some kind with you, um, 
you know, you might be able to find some shelter from rain and stuff, but if you have a sleeping bag and a like a bivy sack to go around it that's waterproof, you're going to be a lot happier uh, because you might have to sleep sleep rough on your way out there. So if you um, if you but if you have all those things and you even just do a little bit of familiarity practice with them, and you have that bag in your car all the time, um, that would make a world of difference to somebody like that's fleeing a city in Ukraine right now if they had that backpack on their back. And the, I'm sure there are a few that did, that did plan this, and they are doing worlds better. And is, this wasn't, we're not talking about communication gadgets, we're not talking about a lot of electronics, we're not talking about, you know, getting on the internet or all that, you, you, all that crap will be useless to you in this situation. This is highly physical situation that you're dealing with. Um, and at that point, you have those things, you'll be able to get to some kind of transportation, get to another node where there's food. And you're just going to keep doing that. Um, now, if you have, if you got tactical Timmy dreams of of going to the suburbs and like raiding houses, because I know some people think this way, city dwellers just yeah. think, oh, well, I'll just buy guns and then I'll go, I'll go marauding. Um, don't <laughs> yeah. you will get absolutely wrecked the first house you come to. Suburban people, yeah, have thought about this, and they will kill you, like really quickly. If this stuff goes down, if a city drops off the grid, every house in the, the suburbs is going to have a highly caffeinated uh, and very aggressive dude with a gun waiting uh, at the top of the stairs for you. Just don't. There's going to be a lot of people during the collapse just waiting for someone to come yes. in the door. But they've wanted their right. whole They've lives. been dreaming of this moment. It's for someone <laughs> to come in and shoot them. So don't <laughs> think you're going to go out there and and raid houses for food. That is stupid. It will get you. It Not only is it immoral, it's stupid and it will get you killed. If you're an urbanite, you've put yourself in this situation for, the, you know, the great food choices. Um, you're still expected to be honorable about how you survive it. So that means just get to another node or get to a relative's house. Um, so there, there. That's our that's part one of our survival lecture. I'll put these notes. I know there was a, like a lot of lists in particular, so I'm going to put the notes and uh, link to the fixing your feet book uh, up on the yeah, the yeah. show the show page. Good, yeah. Uh, and if anyone in Ukraine ugh, is uh, out there. Uh, running away from uh, experiencing this. Are there any Ukrainians out there doing that? Then uh, please come on the yeah, show. Let us know. I I will be disgusted by you because of your tendency to eat. I don't think they'll be listening to podcasts, but you know, you never know. Oh, I bet they are. They're like running around. It's one of those things where they're like pretend. They're like you know, they're mostly fine. Mm-hmm. They've still got internet, but they're like, oh, I'm living through historical circumstances. Yeah, I mean, that's there. Uh, there are you see a lot of people that are just even people being invaded, wrapping up like wrapping themselves up in the drama, but really haven't experienced anything. Just like yeah, just like COVID. Like we're like, fine. What's wrong yeah. with you? This isn't the road. You're you haven't <laughs> left your room. You know, like it's I carry the fire. <sighs> Anyway, so yeah, so I guess, uh, yeah, that was good. Uh, I don't, uh, to be honest, I think a lot of our listeners are just going to die. Well, hopefully not. Uh, and then I'll we'll have to get, it will be annoying because we'll have to get a whole new crop of listeners after World War Three. Yeah. 
Like, I want you guys to survive mostly out of selfish reasons because I don't want to have to rebuild a listener Yeah, base. it's a lot of work. If you guys all die, and then we have to do this again... Ugh, it's so annoying. It, I mean, maybe more people would listen, though, and it would be easier after World War III. Well, maybe know. if we, if we like... Is World War Three good or bad for the show? That's the main It could question. be good. You know, we, we've had yeah. a lot of good takes, you know... This this past uh, ten ten episodes or so that have come true, so maybe we'll establish our credibility on the backs of millions of dead. Uh, I mean, is it is that a, I mean is that not a price worth? Paying? Well, if they're gonna die anyway, for the for the content. you know, might as well. Yeah, so I think I think it's gonna be good. For, I think, but I want you guys to survive just so that you can keep listening and like, I mean. We would lose Gumroad subscribers yeah. if you yeah. died. Um, it would just be a thing. So try not to die for our own selfish. Reason. Yeah. Uh, but I think most of you will because if you listen to Smokestack for this long and have still not planted it, mm-hmm. and so you're not going to make it in GMI, as the kids say. Should we should we do um, the the gardening? How to start a garden right now? Uh, should we do that now, or we uh, we wait till next week? No, no. show will be too long. I do have so, I do have a little mailbag the interview with the with the fellas about now. about an hour. Okay, all right. Well, let's do a little mailbag and then we'll jump into your interview. How about that? All right, hit it, hit me with some mailbag. Well, um, first off, we got a an email from Two Cycle, who uh, wants to huh? present for con- the audience's consideration. His taxonomy and gradients of male human strength. And the, the gradients okay. have nothing to do with how much you've exercised or worked out. So, abstract. Okay. Strength exists in naturally occurring gradients, although not critically examinable by the science. Peace be upon him. Uh, for the sake of this thought experiment, naturally occurring strengths are only considered uh, and not that of bodybuilders and powerlifters and other specialized weirdos. So... Uh, in in fifth place, we're going to call this Dad Strong. Men develop the supernatural ability to carry immense loads after becoming a father. Observable at any beach where dads are seen carrying six chairs, four bags, 11 towels, four buckets, two, five shovels, two coolers, and an umbrella, etc. At fourth place, Old Man Strong. Now, I've been told by um, a listener of our, our show, friend of show, Albert Einstein, that I ha- I am Old Man Strong. <laughs> um, typically a combination of dad strong and liver experience, usually peaking at around age 65, a cursory, uh, search of old man knocking out some unsuspecting glib young punk reveals a near endless list of examples. Number three, country boy strong present at any feed or farm supply store. These men grab, lift, and move 50-pound bags of animal feed around like a normal person grabs a small bag of cat food. They perform the feat repeatedly throughout the day. On several occasions, I've observed 600 pounds, 12 bags of feed, hand-loaded into a truck while having a conversation without even the slightest grunt or expression of exertion. This is colloquially known as, if he gets his hands on you, you ain't getting loose. Uh, The number two spot is retard strong. Biological, re- oh, yeah. Bi- biological reasons exist for this. Discuss on your own. And number one is Gorilla Strong. And Gorilla was included because of the anatomical similarities. 
This isn't the strongest animal category. A gorilla can rip a human apart like an overcooked slimy rotisserie chicken, joint from joint, limb from limb. If you aren't walking around every day terrified of the thought of being ripped apart by a gorilla, you are not paying attention. Thus, thus ends the strength gradients for your consideration. I hope you at least attain to old man strong, everybody in this audience. Um, that was two-stroke? That was from two-cycle. I always call him two-stroke, but it's actually two-cycle. And then the Duke of Alba answered our um, Russian military question from a couple episodes ago. And he says, um, why we haven't seen the S-400 missile system in action, a theory by Duke of Alba. Well, the short answer is because the Russians don't need it in their fight against Ukraine. While it is true that the Ukrainian Air Force was able to fly some sorties against the Russians, it is very not very much, and the damage that they caused was not really significant. Most of their Air Force got whacked on the tarmac early in the invasion, so what was left could mostly make token strikes. But why not use it anyway? Because... Just outside of Yuki airspace, the U.S. is very likely flying certain electronic intelligence gathering platforms, waiting for the S-400 batteries to fill the skies with all the signals they generate. They would get a lot of intelligence on how the system operates this way, providing valuable information to develop countermeasures, whether electronic warfare or other. This is... uh, this system is one of Russia's main aces in the hole if they come to blows with the U.S. and NATO, so they will not expose it until then, in my opinion. Uh, I believe we haven't seen a number of their newest systems for the same reason. The Russians keep a lot of old gear on hand to arm lesser quality troops, and indeed that's who's that's who we've seen doing most of the fighting in the invasion. The best troops and the best gear are mostly sitting this one out. Le fin. So, thank you, Duke of Alba. I think that's a great. Uh, I think that's a great answer, and it reveals a little bit about the long-term thinking of this Russian action. Yes, and also, oh, uh, someone sent us a letter. I was too harsh on the MPC four. You were too. <laughs> I was too harsh on the. the so they're MPC4. not. Ge- they're not that's genocidal. True. No, only Weave is. Okay, but he's there. Okay. And I just, I associate it so much with Weave, and I know that's not fair. Well, he's apparently not the leader of the NPC forum, right? He's not, but he just, uh, in my head, when I think, because he would, he would, he's the one that would always talk mm-hmm. about it. But <clears throat> I understand that NPC is not Weave, and Weave is not NPC. Okay. Um, and uh, so I, I did give it too, too much of a harshness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I don't even dislike Weave, he's just a genocidal crazy yeah. maniac. He's nice in his way. In in his way, he's just mentally, uh, I don't know, legitimately insane. <laughs> so, well, let it never be said that when we get it wrong, we don't correct ourselves on on air. That's right. Everyone, go to the NPC forum. And- Hello, guys over there. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, let's go into the interview with Ron Dart. Bum, 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 bum. We're going to discuss uh, C.S. Lewis, Father Bede, Christian Ashram movement, and uh, the Inklings and various things. Here we go. Yeah, how about you? Have you been in uh, BC your whole life? Or? Uh, no, grew up in um, grew up in Toronto, and then lived in Switzerland in the early seventies uh, for a few years, and then I've pretty well been west 
um, since that, when I came back from Switzerland, we've lived uh, out in British Columbia since the seventies. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. So um, yeah. Thank you for doing this. This is really it's really nice. I've watched your uh, YouTube videos for some time. So. Oh, good. <laughs> Which ones have you found uh, helpful? Uh, your ones about uh, I started the ones that are most memorable for me were your ones uh, on George McDonald. Mm. Because I, I was a big McDonald fan, introduced to him by C.S. Lewis, obviously. Yes. And then um, uh, you talking about, um, I believe you did one, why George McDonald turned in horror from the, the like the theology of St. Augustine. Yes. Yeah. And that was, that was, uh, that was very insightful. Mm. I enjoyed that one a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole, um, there's a whole, the uh, sort of neo-Calvinist tradition that uh, draw from Calvin, Augustine, and their read of Paul and Romans and Galatians, which uh, they think C.S. Lewis and MacDonald would be a, well, they're very suspicious, these people of MacDonald, even though they love Lewis, but Lewis himself just loved MacDonald, so you yeah, can't I know. say. It's, yeah. it's weird when people are suspicious of MacDonald, but love Lewis. Yes, because Lewis wrote Lewis wrote that he thought that no one came closer to the mind of Jesus than McDonald. Right. So like he obviously thought that he was on the money on many things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No. Absolutely. It's. Uh, but I think what you do is you get amongst certain neo-Calvinists and evangelicals a trivializing and a domesticating of Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, they shrink him to their wants and needs and thereby they distort who he is. And then when Lewis turns to people like McDonald, they don't quite get it because he doesn't fit within that Procrustean bed. Yeah. Or, or uh, father Bede really. Yes. Yeah. Because both of them are sort of outside what um, a lot of mainline Protestants would be comfortable with. I, I yeah. think. Um, yeah. But yeah. So um Thanks for doing this interview. Uh, and just some background for our listeners. Um, this came about because I recently realized that a guy that I'd heard of, uh, Father Bede, um, had had a much greater impact on my life than I realized. And this is because like, I was online and I saw the snippet of a letter between Father Bede and C.S. Lewis. And I'd, I've read the letters of C.S. Lewis before, but I never really paid attention to that name. And then one day, this see this, they hit me. Like, is that the same father? Is that the same father bead? I just <laughs> that I've seen. I was like, oh, it was. And um, I knew of him because of his influence on uh, Rupert Sheldrake, mm. who was. Are you familiar with Rupert? Oh yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And Rupert's hypo, um, like his morphogenetic field theory and all that. Um, and of course, his interviews with Terence McKenna were just huge for me. Mm. in breaking me out of scientific materialism. Mm. Uh, and I, I was aware that he had it. He was, uh, he was, he was like under, well, father Bede was basically the person that brought him back to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Sheldrake. And they had a, at least one interview uh, that's recorded that I've listened to where they were talking about angels. And it just, I saw this letter, the snippet of a letter that said to Dom, bead and i was like is that the same bead and it was and so then i started digging digging around and i saw that someone had written a book about their friendship and it was someone named ron dart i clicked on it saw the author bio i was like oh is this that guy from youtube that's yeah. the, that's the same 
And so then I realized, hey, that is uh, too many coincidences to ignore. So I decided that I should ask you to come on the show. And I think you're the first person on our podcast to uh, be have a Wikipedia page about them. That's something. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so how did you, you're, um, I guess first we should introduce you a little bit. Uh, so you're a professor at McMaster University, right? In Canada? Oh, University of the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Oh, okay. I thought, yeah, I must have some old in- info. Yeah. Well, I did, I did my doctoral studies at McMaster in okay. Hamilton, Ontario. Okay. And you're, are you also, you're an Alpine Club of Canada certified mountaineer? Uh, not a certified mountaineer, but I've done, uh, I was at one point many years ago thinking of becoming a, a certified mountain guide, but I work, I worked with the Alpen Club of Canada and BC Mountaineers, and then we have yeah. a uh, Chilliwack Outdoor Club here in the Fraser Valley. Oh, wow. Okay. So t- tell me a little bit about that first, if you don't mind, because like I've watched some of your videos and you don't really bring it up, but I get this sense just from listening to you that you're the sort of person for whom outdoors and nature is very much a part of your spiritual journey is that true oh absolutely yeah no i think the oxygen we breathe from the out of doors uh, refreshes and nourishes our soul and uh, uh i think to the degree that we understand the relationship of humans in the natural world and the symbiotic relationship between them also in mountaineering uh, at its best, when you get in those high alpine slopes and upper ridges, you have a spacious view of reality mm. and what you can see from the heights. And so you don't get to Shakespeare would say cabin cribbed and confined into little world views. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a spacious Catholicity uh, from being in the mountains that you know, people who settle their little acreages, as it were, of intellectual thought and little parts of the mountain and call their little acreage the mountain. Yeah. Thereby dis- yeah. So it's, uh, to me, mountaineering is also a metaphor for um, intellectual thought and a certain mm. uh, richness and fullness of intellectual thought as well. And be careful not to shrink reality as i said to a little acreage on the mountainside and call your acreage the mountain yeah well it's like nietzsche said don't trust any thought that you have indoors there's some wisdom to that yeah and i've spent uh, time at nietzsche's home in switzerland i did when i was doing my doctoral comprehensives i had to translate thus spake zarathustra from the german to english but i Time at his home in Sils Maria in the Engadine Valley, traveled all the trails Nietzsche did, where he had uh-huh. his, you know, myth of the, re- of the eternal recurrence of the same and yeah. hiked up those trails. So, yeah, no, I know the Sils Maria area south of Mont Saint Moritz very well, where I've spent, uh, as I said, there's a scholar in residence program at his home. And mm-hmm. so I've spent time there, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, do you have any like, uh, personal feats of mountaineering you'd like to share like some summit you climbed or something do you mostly do you is it mostly hiking for you and skiing or do you actually do have you actually done rock climbing and that yeah sort? i've done, done all of them some of the lovely trips in canada there's there's what they call the wap to traverse it's called mm-hmm. the high route canada from the ice fields it's about a seven eight day trip you oh, wow. can either see it in the winter. There's four huts way up on the glacier. So you start from Pato and move all the way down to 
walked. That's a lovely seven uh, seven day trip. But um, uh, on the west coast, we have loads of great uh, mountaineering trips, ski trips, touring mm-hmm. trips on skis. So um, uh, all season, you know, uh, mountaineering from you know winter skiing right. and tour downhill. Live quite close to Whistler Blackcomb, so we're love getting up there skiing. Um, we're right now building a um, what's called it's going to be the Spearhead Traverse. You ski around thirteen glaciers. It's another oh, wow. lovely trip um uh no i've done lots of lots of peaks as well when i lived in switzerland i was just right by the jungfrau and the monk and the eiger lived in a a cabin there some of those great peaks and another time i was lived quite close to the matterhorns or mats and oh wow um, yeah so yeah lots of well decades of mountaineering and it's a I've done a couple of books on mountaineering, mountaineering in the humanities, Thomas Merton and the beats of the North Cascades. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's uh, that whole um, mountaineering outdoors, nature is just part of the genetic code of my soul. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a climbing enthusiast myself. I'm not very good at it, mind you. Yeah. On a good day, I can get like halfway up a 512. Yeah, but, but but I'm usually stopped by the five elevens, you know, at some point. Yeah, um, but yeah. I'm I'm it's it's a work in progress. Oh, I'm just yeah. I, I'm sort of I'm bigger and heavier than most people that climb, so oh, makes more work. <laughs> it does. Um, okay, so professionally, you're in I guess religious studies and political science. Is that right? Well, the old humanities, so political science, philosophy, and religious yeah. studies. Yeah, so it's the classical humanities I've taught in for over 35 years. Okay. Now, what, what got you into that? Because, like, um, I've listening to your, uh, your lectures online, it seems like you could have easily been a sort of person that became, like, a minister or something like that. Because you're, you're hom- you have very, like, you could be very good at homilies. and. Uh, it just you sort of you sort of convey this spirit of like a more of a pastoral spirit in my opinion that and so what drew you into the academic route specifically uh when i was in my 20s and doing my first ma uh i was particularly in classical thought not only classical Mm-hmm. Greek and Roman thought, but classical Christian thought, the patristics, the mothers and fathers of the um, of the East as well as the West. And my advisor, I was doing a thesis on Thomas Merton and also John Cassian. And he said, you know, the work you're doing is really the work of what many Anglican, Catholic or Orthodox people who go on to become priests do. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, have you ever thought of going on actually to seminary and becoming a priest? And um, so I went for a long walk with my wife. This would have been the mid 70s. Mm-hmm. It was in Vancouver, down, down by the ocean. And we chatted a lot about it. And she says, you know, I think your vocation is probably the university will be your parish and the lectern, uh, as it were, uh, at the university will be your pulpit. And mm. she says, I think your vocation, uh, even though your interest is classical Christian, I think you will work that out, not within formally the context of the classical form of Christianity, but within the university context and do it 
uh, bringing together wisdom and insight within a pastoral, as you say, a pastoral side, trying to evoke, call forth within people what they're meant to be in terms of their vocational life. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, um, it, it, it may seem uh, from, from the, from a view of someone in the United States, like I've always viewed the, the infusion of politics with people's religion is a very United States thing, but you write about them sort of seamlessly from a Canadian perspective as well. And is, uh, is that, is that as unique to the United States as I think it is, or is that just, do we just do it more insanely or is that something? Yeah. Perhaps you do it more insanely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we have a tradition in Canada, it's called high Toryism or red Toryism, and it doesn't fit nicely or snugly either into, in your American context, Republican or um, Democrat, or in Canada, Mm -hmm. leftist NDP or liberal or conservative. Um, It transcends the tribalism of those tendencies while recognizing then in each of them, there's certain truths, but certain blind spots, certain Achilles heel, yet certain insights. And so uh, certainly the transition between spirituality life in the church and public responsibility is a very Canadian way of thinking, but it's a way of thinking that doesn't get um, uh, trapped into certain ideological political tendencies and how that can dim the imagination and soul and mind while honoring different attempts to embody those ideas in political parties. Yeah, I, well, I've read that you, and I don't know if this is true. This is something I read that you are you have been critical of the new conservative movement in like Canada, and that it is not in keeping with the what you would call the high Tory tradition. Is that true? Are they tending more towards? I guess my question is: Are they tending toward more towards the United States model of conservatism? Or yeah, yeah, there has been in the last well, really since. World War II, as Canada moved away from its French-British uh-huh. roots and got drawn into the American gravitational field, yeah, there has yeah. there has been a tendency for the form of conservatism in Canada to, in one sense, ape or mimic or mirror the Republican tradition, yeah. whereas yeah. historic um, conservatism in Canada is what you call high Tory or red Tory, which is very different from conservatism or republicanism in the state. It has a view of the high view of the state, higher taxes, uh, providing for the common good from coast to coast. And so our high Tory conservatism often seems for many to be closer to leftist thought, be Mm -hmm. leftist from your Democratic Party, even closer to Bernie Sanders or something, or maybe left of Sanders. Yeah, so it's a very different, we never broke from the European tradition uh, in quite the way the United States did. So we come from a very different understanding of the common good, the role of state and society in a just way for providing for that through higher taxes. So it's, yeah, I've written about 10 books on um, yeah. on high Tory. My big one that came out a few years ago is the North American high Tory tradition. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, because is it is that, so I, I think like, Religious conservatism in a, in the U.S. is sort of like driven by uh, Southern Baptists and evangelical. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like that in Canada, it's more 
traditionally at least has been from a, like a high church Anglican position. Is that true? Yeah. So it, the, one of the oh, are, you, are you're you're Anglican, are you not? Or is that yes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. One of the great differences in terms of the founding of the United States and the founding of Canada at a religious level, the form of Christianity that played a significant role in founding of Canada was the Roman Catholic and the Anglican traditions. Mm-hmm. So when you translate those visions into politics, it's about the common good and the role of state and society working for the good of one and all. The form of Christianity that played a significant role in founding the United States was more the Protestant Puritan tradition. Right. Uh, and that that is a very different understanding of religion and politics in regards to the state and society and the individual. Um, and so they're two very, very different religio-political traditions. And also, we never cut the umbilical cord uh, with England and France in quite the same way the United States did. So we're a very different people in the North in how we understand religion, uh, spirituality, um, the church, politics. And so it's... uh, they're, even though we live in the same continent, we're very different peoples. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've tried to explain that on the show before. Like people think that down here, a lot of people think of Canada as like the 51st state. Yes. You know, and I said, well, no, they actually have a very different view on like how things should go. Yes. And, and, and though I think sometimes by political force, they're sort of uh, Canada sort of has to go along with the U.S. just for politics reasons. They would rather not. Yeah, I feel I feel. But so um, you wrote a book about Lewis and Bede, which is what um, uh, prompted me to contact you. What drew you to their friendship uh, specifically? Like why? Why? What? Why write a whole book about this friendship between Bede and Lewis? Well, I took in with my mother's milk the inklings. So whether it's... oh, I did too. I did too. Yeah, so whether the antecedents, George MacDonald, Chesterton, Lewis, Tolkien, Barfield, Dorothy Sayers, um, any of this group was something I just grew up with. We just took this, these were were people who articulated, who understood meaningful Christianity in a cultural, thoughtful, educational manner. And um, so Lewis specifically... Uh, his journey to Christianity, well, Bede Griffiths was a student of Lewis at Oxford. Mm -hmm. And they came to Christianity essentially at the same time in the late 1920s, 1930. And uh, Lewis dedicated his second autobiography, Surprised by Joy, to Bede Griffiths. I noticed that. Yeah. And like I said, I've read these before, but at the time I read them first time through, I wasn't aware of who Bede Griffiths was. And then the second or third time I read them, I just didn't really pay attention to the dedication. And then I went back and like, oh, it's been there the whole time. And I never noticed it. You know, it's. <laughs> yes. Yes. The question for me, first of all, given the fact and, and Griffiths is often ignored in the um, journey of Lewis to Christianity, even though he was one of his prized students. And Bede Griffiths' first autobiography, The Golden String, he mentions the significant role of Lewis in his journey. And so sometimes Tolkien and uh, Barfield and others are credited with Lewis's turn to Christianity. 
but in fact, Bede Griffiths is a significant figure in that process, and he's often ignored. So one of my questions is, why has Bede Griffiths essentially been written out of the Inklings, written out of Lewis's journey? Any of the biographies of Lewis virtually ignore Bede Griffiths. Mm-hmm. So that that got my curiosity. It wet my curiosity to say who was. So, you know, 15, 20 years ago, my question is, uh, well, who is this Bede Griffiths and why is he ignored in the Inklings Lewis, you know, bibliographies and biographies? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he's never mentioned. But I, I, I noticed that, too. When you pointed that out. I was like, he never comes up. But Lewis mentions him as like from the title of your book, his chief companion on the trip to Christianity and his like yeah. lifelong friend. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah, when Lewis was dying, um, Meade Griffiths made the trip from India, where he, you know, played a very significant role as a Roman Catholic and starting an ashram that dealt with, you know, uh, Christian Hindu dialogue. And uh, he came to see Lewis, and as Lewis was dying, he said, "You know, I, I, I have not had many long-term friends, but Bede, you are one of those people who I consider one of my deepest friends over the decades, and I want to thank you for being there for me." And Bede Griffiths also said, "You know, Lewis, you are one of the dearest people to me in my journey." Um, and so there's, a, I would also say, amongst the Bede Griffiths people, there's often not a lot of work done on C.S. Lewis. Either yeah, so it goes both ways. I, I think it's because they appear so disjointed from each other. Yes. They and and I think there's some really valuable things in bring in understanding that those two people could not only see if not see eye to eye, but like be the closest of friends. Yes. There's a real value in like string uh, how that can be because a lot of people can't even imagine how that could be possible. Because here you have. Lewis, who is sometimes portrayed as an extremely conservative, very sort of, uh, you know, I mean, like just and their differences on the like, war or violence, you know, like Lewis was in war. He was not he would often write about how it was a bad necessity. And to some degree, uh, Bede was a pure pacifist in a robe, you know, <laughs> who was who was. Uh, he was like a pacifist in a robe, just sort of your traditional sort of uh, um, peaceful holy man uh, in the East. And then somehow these two people are come not only from the same background, but uh, are connected in this deep way. And a lot of people just can't reconcile that. And I think they just shut it, shut one off from the other. Yeah. I think to some degree, Lewis um, has been taken captive by a certain conservative audience or a conservative evangelical audience. Yes. And when you come to interfaith issues, it's, well, certainly he'd have nothing to do with Griffiths and Christianity and Hinduism and mm-hmm. ashrams. Uh, but in fact, Lewis made it very clear in the 50s as Bede was moving increasingly into Christian-Indian interfaith dialogue uh, that he encouraged Griffiths to do that. And Oxford was a real center of interfaith issues as well. And um, Lewis was at the center of some of this these issues. R.C. Zayner, who got the Spalding chair. Um, Lewis, uh, he would often speak at the Socratic Club. And so there's a whole element of Lewis's writings that have been largely ignored by those who have taken over 
Lewis, but misrepresented Lewis in a way that makes it seem as if Abid Griffiths and he have nothing in common. And yet Lewis was broadly sympathetic to what, um, to what in fact Lewis was trying to get at. And Lewis is sometimes seen as you're a rationalist or you're romantic. Lewis was a deep mystic. Oh, people yes. Don't, people don't yes. credit him with that. Yes. You can hear it and in his poetry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And this gives him huge affinities with Bede Griffiths, who was mm -hmm. a mystic, a contemplative. And so I was very interested also in the deeper contemplative element of Lewis, uh, of which in many ways Bede Griffiths and he share on their journey that does lead to the bigger questions of interfaith, uh, interfaith contemplative uh, heritages and some people don't want to go that way uh, and so they shrink Lewis to not even dealing with those issues but that distorts Lewis and it undermines any meaningful dialogue between Griffiths and Lewis so you're you're not getting the full Lewis you're getting a shrunken Lewis to serve certain ideological religious interests yeah I, I mean you could argue uh, pretty from some of his writings like particularly uh, the great divorce, that Lewis really was quite hopeful, a hopeful universalist that everyone and everything really would eventually be saved. And well, this, yeah, yeah. This, is, this is his affinities to some degree with George MacDonald. And of course, yes. the great divorce, he's engaging, he's engaging uh, MacDonald in this, in this. Yeah, MacDonald uh, appears as a character in that book. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's uh, as does William Blake you right. know, in his marriage of heaven and hell. So Lewis was very fond of William Blake as well. And so this this uh, Blake McDonald Lewis is grappling with these issues. He's not a dogmatic universalist, but he's certainly grappling with the nature of what would this look like. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go down that path and what's the relationship of human choice human no, human yes, the transformations we have to go through, the obstinacies we may have internally to, to not mm -hmm. dealing with some of our shadows or our darker sides, which would then hinder moving deeper into the light of life. And so, um, so it's, yeah, he's certainly, and of course, Bede Griffiths grapples with this in, in certainly his writings in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and then of course he dies in the early I course corresponded with Bede Griffiths in the 1990s and I mm. I think I mentioned to you that I have all the correspondence of um, Bede Griffiths to the Canadian C.S. Lewis Society in my uh, personal collection oh wow so do, do, what how would you say if you could and it'd be very difficult to do this but if you could sum up the effect B. Griffiths had on Lewis's journey. How would you do that? Because is he? Because he's. It it seems to me just from the the short time I've spent on it that that he's always pulling Lewis. Whatever tendencies Lewis had to become sort of solidified in one mode of thinking, B was always pulling him out of it. Is that is that accurate or? Well, there's various phases they go through in their journey. I cover this a bit in my book on Lewis and Griffith's chief companions. They both came to Christianity together in the late 20s. Uh, now, Griffiths went in the direction of the Roman Catholic tradition, right. Lewis in the Anglican 
tradition. And they got into quite of a dust up in the early 30s. Um, Griffiths became a very dogmatic Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which is and, hilarious. Yes. <laughs> How he ended up from where he started. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but those early mid 30s, Griffiths is a very pre Vatican II dogmatic Catholic, and uh-huh. he's going uh-huh. after Lewis relentlessly, asking, Why would you possibly become Anglican? Because that's a that may be good for a beginning, but it's it's pretty superficial in terms of the fullness of the Catholic. And Lewis is always coming back at him and say, listen, this is not ecclesial war we need to fight. Um, yeah. To be friends is, uh, this is going to hurt and harm everyone. And so, and of course, Lewis's experiences, uh, you know, Northern Ireland and the battles there, he he knew where these, these sort of ecclesial battles go when you translate Christ into an ecclesiology. And so Lewis was always moderating Griffiths uh, in the mm. early phase to say, come on, Catholic doesn't necessarily mean Roman Catholic. It means right. open to the fullness and the richness of how grace uh, is engaged in uh, the world of the soul and humankind and nature. And so throughout the 30s, they're engaged in this sort of touche, tete-a-tete, uh, of which Griffiths is the aggressor and mm. Lewis is moderating him. Um, That's hard the, to imagine from the from the the bead you get, the Griffiths you get as an, as an older man. That's hard to imagine. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but by the late thirties, what of course is happening is uh, you get the depression then you get the war coming yeah. along and both of them realize, listen, there are bigger issues than fighting over ecclesiology. Yeah, <laughs> We're yeah, having yeah. people killed and uh, let's deal with, what the substantive issues are before us in terms of larger political issues. Mm -hmm. And there's no need to fight over Roman Catholic Anglican when in fact people are being killed across the water and slaughtered across the water in the name of German and Italian and later Spanish uh, fascism. And so, um, so there is this coming together of Lewis and uh, Bede Griffiths through the late thirties uh, 40s. After the war, then you begin to get um, Griffiths is beginning to consciously so move into an interest in Indian religion. Mm-hmm. And Lewis, of course, being English, um, England was in India. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, so you have this very large highway uh, culturally between India and England, given the fact it was a colony. Gandhi was a moving at this time. Rabindranath Tagore is a part of this, mm-hmm. uh, the decolonization. And so Oxford was creating chairs and interfaith dialogue. Cambridge was in the center of all this. Um, and so Griffiths is a part of this post-World War II interested in Anglo-Indian interfaith issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Lewis is also in the Socratic club, uh, increasingly so. There were a variety of issues that were being dealt with there, philosophically, theologically, um, exegetically. But one element was the whole area of interfaith issues as well. Mm. And uh, Lewis was a key figure in inviting some key interfaith thinkers. R.C. Zayner was probably the most important um, in all of that. Uh, but what you get by the 50s is increasingly so Griffiths 
um, from being the student of Lewis, he becomes the teacher to Lewis mm. in terms of uh, in terms of Christian Indian thinking, and Lewis encourages him in that. So the letters in the fifties between Lewis and Griffiths, he says, essentially, go for it. The questions you're asking about depth, mysticism, the contempt, we need to learn from Indian thought on this. Right, right. Yeah, I, I find that fascinating that Lewis so pushed him in that direction. Yeah, yeah. He encouraged, he affirmed. The thing he said, to, he, he warned Griffiths, he says, the only thing, don't get frozen on only the Indian tradition. There's the Confucian tradition. There's the Taoist tradition. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to uh, think interfaith, just don't reduce it to the Indian tradition uh, and the Hindu tradition. Be broadly Catholic in terms of uh, thinking large, larger interfaith questions. So for example, his little, uh, his little book that he ends with, the Tao, um, uh, he's he's very much thinking in terms of uh, Chinese Taoism and Confucianism. Yeah. So he encourages Griffiths think Chinese thought, not only Indian thought, but China has a rich culture of Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism. So, um, uh, if I remember then, correctly, in his book Miracles or one of the other ones, he refers to Jesus as the Tao. Yes, I yeah. forget which one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so he very, was, very much. Yeah, he was very into that mode of thinking. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so, for example, so his little book, The Abolition of Man, which oh, yeah, just, that one. yeah, it ends with the Tao. Okay, right. so, oh, yeah. So, in fact, what you have is Griffiths by the mid late 50s is drawing Lewis into a richer and fuller understanding of Indian religion, particularly in um, Hinduism. Lewis is encouraged Griffiths to think about the Chinese tradition of the Tao and Confucianism. So they're engaged in this rich dialogue of a broader interfaith um, approach. And so uh, it's not like Lewis retreats from the discussion. He's trying to widen, widen Griffiths out to think, yes, go for it in terms of the Indian uh, Hindu tradition, but don't turn against the Chinese Taoist uh, tradition mm -hmm. confusion either and then of course by the early 60s sadly so lewis died rather young right uh, so he never had a chance to really develop this in a fuller way whereas griffiths after lewis's death he begins to really mature in these larger issues of interfaith contemplative interfaith issues uh and of course lewis is gone at that point but then for griffiths concern was that there were many people who were so smitten by Lewis that he became a bit of an icon for many yes. of them of how yeah. to think Christianity in a thoughtful way. But he got shrunken to serve certain reformed, evangelical, even reactionary Catholic, Roman Catholic interests, mm -hmm. even Orthodox interests. Mm -hmm. um, Griffiths began to write by the 1980s or 1970s, the Canadian C.S. Lewis Journal started, and many people were writing to it um, saying, this is what Lewis thought, and this is how Lewis would have dealt with it. And Bede says, listen, I was a student of Lewis, and this is not how Lewis would have engaged these issues. You're shrinking him to serve either Tridentine Catholic issues, Reformed Evangelical or Orthodox issues, and he was bigger than all of that. So all the letters Bede Griffiths sent to the Canadian C.S. Lewis Journal attempt to rescue Lewis 
mm. from um, from him being sort of uh, reduced to a plaything of fairly reactionary Christianity. And I have all of those letters in, yeah. uh, in my personal collection that uh, I include some of them in my book then on Lewis and Griffiths, um, Chief Companions. Yeah, and unfortunately, I don't know that Bede was overly successful in, reform- in keeping him from being put in that box. Yeah. Because no, he seems to have, like, like you said earlier, the mystical side of Lewis is completely ignored, even though if you pay attention, it's all over the place. Yes. His poetry, but also it shows up in Narnia. Yes. And uh, I mean, it's it's uh, everywhere. How do you, but it is like, how did Lewis, do you think, see because the charge against B. Griffiths, you know, he goes over to India, he dresses like a yogi, he has an ashram, but he's doing it in the name of Jesus, right? And so the the charge made against him that is understandable is like, well, he's just, he's either appropriating the, the Hindu culture or he's trying to uh, shoehorn himself into this. Or how did Bede and Lewis see what Griffiths's project in, in, in terms of like, did they see it as trying to understand Christianity through the, through a different lens or did they see it as just strictly an evangelical effort, you know, or, or adopting the forms of someone else so they could better, be better understood. Like what, what was Bede really trying to do by, by doing this wild thing where he goes over and starts an ashram in the name of Jesus and is wearing yogi costumes because he was a Benedictine monk, but also like this, this strange yogi fellow. Do you have a sense of, yeah. Yeah. I think it's the same sort of project Thomas Merton was engaged with. Yes. And and, and Griffiths had a great affinity for Thomas Merton as well. I've done four or five books on Thomas Merton. Um, And Griffiths had a great respect, even though Merton died in 68 just a few years after C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a couple of things, I think a few things, when you think of interfaith issues. There's two extremes that Griffiths, Lewis, Merton, and others were trying to avoid. On the one extreme is that Christianity is absolutely right, and all other religions are totally wrong. So it's a simple black and white. So why would you waste time other than conversion or mission or something? Right, right, right. So it's simple. It's the old or what has Athens to do with Jerusalem, as it were, Mm -hmm. or or what has Christianity to do with Judaism or Islam or Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Sikh, you name it. The other, so the one position is that they have nothing in common, total discord. The flip side, the other extreme, is they're really saying much the same thing which is mm-hmm. a world of concord rather than discord, convergence rather than di- divergence. Um, the third one is what Merton, Griffiths, Lewis are arguing, is this middle way between, at an intellectual level, what's their point of convergence and concord, and yet where are they different theologically, philosophically, mm-hmm. So that's, at the one level, the bigger model of trying to make sense of interfaith. The second level, which is the practical, is that the West has become so driven in terms of its busyness, its franticness, its doing, Mm. doing, doing. It's what Evelyn Underhill says, we spend so much time conjugating three verbs to want, to have, to do, we forgot (laughs) what it means to be. Right. 
So this, this drug of the Vita Activa on which the West is, is so preoccupied with uber busyness that it's lost the Vita Contemplativa. Mm. Um, and so the task of which Lewis was concerned, Merton was concerned as a Cistercian monk, Bede as a Benedictine, is what sources are there not only in Christianity that can be recalled, which are contemplative, but in these other religions also, living religions today, how are, you know, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, who are the sages and gurus in India that are still living out of a contemplative heritage in which people know the difference between the false self, the shallow self, and the deep self, and how is that process understood? And so there's this practical dimension of which has often been forgotten within the Christian tradition, but it also exists within other religions, the contemplative, meditative, mystical tradition. And then how is that appropriated or experienced? The same thing you find in T.S. Eliot, for example, yeah. uh, in you know his early wasteland, but finally four quartets uh, that he's grappling. I lived for a time at Little Gidding in just outside of Cambridge when I was at Cambridge. And, you know, Eliot is deep mystic um, oh, as yes, well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he and Herman Hess, for Herman Hess's, I did a book on Herman Hess mm -hmm. uh, as well. Very important, very important writer who actually had most of his works engage Nietzsche quite often. Mm -hmm. um, um, but I think so at a cognitive level, you have these thinkers trying to avoid the extremes of total discord between religions. On the other hand, you want to avoid the other extreme where they're all saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. Our mystics are all saying the same thing. And there's this middle way in, of, of subtle and nuanced discernment. Where are they saying the same things and where are they not saying the same things? And uh, what's the dialogue in this middle area uh, which Merton certainly explores, Bede Griffiths. Lewis was very interested. He died too young, I think, to enter into uh, a fuller. I mean, C.S. Lewis had a great respect for Thomas Merton. He thought he was one oh, of the yeah. most brilliant writers. And Thomas Merton just loved C.S. Lewis. So these are another two that are often ignored. People don't often say C.S. Lewis. And you have the Merton groupies and the Lewis groupies, but most don't realize that yeah. the two of them yeah. had a great respect for one another. Yeah. It, now, speaking of Merton, so Merton also, Merton and Griffiths are sort of like uh, similar characters. They're both monks, one Trappist, one uh, Benedictine. And they both take on the forms, because Merton was very interested in, in um, more of the, the Taoism, Confucianism, Buddhism, Oriental religions. That's where his focus seems to have been. And then uh, Bede on Hinduism. And so they're both trying to work, I don't know, maybe work, I don't know, work those into Christianity or work Christianity out through them, one of the two. Is there something, and they were both sort of born around the same time, one I think 1906, one like 1910s or something. It, was there something, just like in the cultural water at the time that they felt the need to begin doing that? Is it the war? Is it the, is it the, is, was it the, what, what caused like this sudden shift? Because you see it in Vatican II also, where they go from a very the pre-Vatican II church attitude is very different from the post-Vatican II. So, like, what was causing this 
movement? Well, I think at a larger cultural level, there's the end of Christendom as a civilization. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Fragmenting, obviously, through the centuries of Christianity. There's the dominance of a, a type of secularism, which is anti-religious. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the longing for people in terms of a form of spirituality, which isn't um, that uber vita activa. People are realizing there's a certain emptiness in um, this extreme busyness. It's yeah, a sort yeah. of running away from the self. It's mm-hmm. a it's a drug. It's an escape rather than slowing down and being still. Uh, there's the emergence of uh, all these other religions are becoming so rather than you know civilizations living in splendid isolation, you in fact are getting increasingly so um, various major and minor religions converging in the same similar to the late antique roman empire that in fact all of these different religions i mean christianity was born into a period of religious pluralism yeah um, yeah so it really should so, be at home here yes oh yes yeah, yeah yeah so so i think there's a multiplicity of cultural social historical causes i also think there was a certain guilt amongst americans after world war ii with the bombing of hiroshima and nagasaki Mm -hmm. that um so you many of the beats i've done a couple of books on thomas merton and the beats Mm -hmm. Uh, many of them went to japan to study with with roshis and particularly suzuki was a very important dt suzuki bridge between japan and the united states and so there was this belief yeah they were our enemy but in fact their spirituality and their meditative approach goes much deeper than any sort of actual form of Christian religion at the time. So we can learn from that uh, because it seems to have disappeared within Christianity, both within um, uh, Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. And so there was this hunger for depth, a hunger for silence and solitude and what is revealed in the quietness of silence and solitude and a great deal of the, the broader culture, as well as Christianity, which had was sailing on that water, had been so taken in by a, a hyper busyness mm. uh, in which people had lost any sense of any inner centeredness or the still point in the moving world, as T.S. Eliot would say, um, that they're then turning to other religions. And so Merton, B. Griffiths, um, C.S. Lewis, um, and there's many others, of course, they tend to be fairly well known. But the beat tradition of Jack Kerouac, Gary Snyder, uh, Philip Whalen, Kenneth Rexroth, there's a whole movement towards not just intellectual interfaith issues, but the applied existential contemplative element as well. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the monasteries are almost, I mean, almost completely all gone. Once upon a time, we had them, and there's still a few hanging on, but, I mean, it's not, it's nowhere near, like, like you're saying, largely in Christianity, there is no, right now, there is no current contemplative active tradition happening. It is, it is very much um, go to church on Sunday, and then don't think about it again. Well, there are there are forms. I think you know, post Burton, post Griffiths, there are movements. You know, yeah. centering prayer and Thomas Keating and 
what goes on at New Camaldoli and Big Sur. And so there are a variety of forms at the present time of Christianity, both monastic and non-monastic, that are attempting to reclaim that yeah. deeper contemplative heritage. And these all stand in the shoulders of people like um, Bede Griffiths and Thomas Merton mm -hmm. and C.S. Lewis. And there's many other people uh, as well. But the whole sort of centering prayer tradition of Basil Pennington mm -hmm. and, as I said, Thomas Keating and, uh, you know, retreat centers and conference centers. And so, um, you know, Finley, for example, is very popular for many people who is a novice under Merton. Um, his work on Palace of Nowhere and everything that's come out after that, um, James Finley. And so, um, there is, a, there is uh, in a variety of ways within Christianity today, uh, not only a hunger for this, but with, there are women and men who are embodying uh, how this element of the faith journey uh, can be, one can be attentive to, cultivated and grow into it. So you have wiser, deeper, insightful people. And these are all children of Merton, Bede Griffiths, C.S. Lewis, and, and uh, Evelyn Underhill would have been earlier. Um, very key uh, person I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of, uh, there's this one quote from a letter between Lewis and Griffiths, which I think sort of uh, talks about. So about what maybe why they were doing this and it, like you said there was a need to recapture this because people were leaving going after other religions and um, so lewis said to Bede, i think a glance at my correspondence would cheer you up letter after letter from recent converts by ones and twos often married couples with children it amounts to nothing by the standards of world statistics but are they are those the right standards i sometimes have a feeling that all the big mass conversions of the dark ages often carry out, carried out by force, were all a false dawn, and that the world, and that the whole work has to be done over again. So like that right there, he's, he's sort of like, <sighs> C.S. Lewis is sort of wondering whether the whole project has to be restarted. It's, it's, it's yeah. No, very much so. So the whole sort of the Billy Graham tradition of big crusades, large conversions, you mm -hmm. know, rallies, and uh, which seems to be numerically the growth of faith. It's all it's, you know, it's about as deep as a puddle. And yeah, um, it's the, it's the seed on uh, the seed thrown on the rocky ground. Yes. Yeah. So what seems to be the expansion and um, in one sense, uh, growth of Christianity again is just a short term that is mm -hmm. not going to hold in the tempests and winds of time. And Lewis was acutely aware of this as a medieval Renaissance scholar, that without depth, what seems to be uh, growth, in fact, is not going to last very long because there's no deeper contemplative uh, content. They were all very interested in the breakdown of Western civilization that was losing a spiritual depth. Yeah. Um, Herman Hess, as I mentioned earlier, is a part of this. T.S. Eliot's a part of this. And so to understand these larger cultural issues and the implosion within the West of any depth, yeah. um, people like Lewis and Hess and Eliot and um, Merton and Griffiths, they're, all, they're like... Um, they're like the canaries in the mine shaft. I don't know if you have the, in the United States and Canada, we would have miners go into the oh, yeah. shaft 
they bring little canaries in the cage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The canary went down, it meant there were toxins in the shaft and they would hurry back up. Right, um, right. So, so these artists and thinkers, they're like canaries in the mine shaft. They pick up the toxins of modernity uh, and they realize, you know, things are out of joint to use Hamlet's phrase. Yeah, yeah. Um, so increasingly as times has moved on, I think people have realized that it's, it's um, Charles Taylor in Canada, great philosopher, talks about the malaise that many people feel or sort of um, the betrayal of depth. And um, people like Lewis and Hesse and Eliot and Griffiths, these are the these are the canaries that are alerting people that something's wrong. So then, what is that which is the problem? And then, what turns do we make to recover our souls so we don't lose our spirit and our souls as we continue the journey forward, not only individually but as a culture and as a civilization? So, these are all key women and men you know that people should be attuned to because they're they see they hear in that sense they're prophets as well as contemplatives and so very important yeah and they've i think they've largely been proven correct i mean the yes. the spiritual uh essence of western culture has done nothing but decline since yeah yeah since their time um so we like to keep it about an hour uh but before we wrap up we usually have two questions uh, because this is this show also deal, deals with some paranormal things and like that sort of thing. And you being an outdoorsman, what are your thoughts on Bigfoot? Well, <laughs> where I live uh -huh. is just down the road from Harrison Lake, which is the center of Sasquatch Company. Yeah. Yeah, so if you ever come to where we live, there's huge statues of Bigfoot and Sasquatch all over yeah. the place. Yeah. yeah. So. Now, whether they exist or not, that's an interesting story. Or whether you see them loping through the mountains or through the forests or over snowfields, that's always a matter of conjecture. There's lots of interesting uh, stories written on the Bigfoot, the Yeti, the Sasquatch, yeah. but just down the road, yeah, as we people come from all over the world to go to Harrison Lake, where the people claim to be sightings of Sasquatch or the Yeti or the Bigfoot. Right, and you've never you've never personally seen one. No, other than statues and wooden virgins. Yeah. So, no. Okay. Have you ever had any experience that you would regard as paranormal or supernatural? Well, I guess, first of all, it would depend on what a person means by that. Yeah, right. I think to me, the deepest meaning of supernatural is that, um, in fact, in our journey, the nature of transformation from a false narcissistic egoistic center to a much more generous gracious new being is probably the deepest meaning of the supernatural in which we move away from our false self or what cs lewis would talk about until we have faces mm -hmm. and in mm -hmm. fact we we move away from our false face our false understanding of identity into, in fact, our eternal understanding of who we're meant to be. And that involves, as Dante so well understood in the Divine Comedy, facing, going into the inferno of what has to be burned away through the purgatorio and finally into the paradiso. So some people can sometimes identify the supernatural with some intense experience, either induced through drugs or some right. defined intense epiphany. Uh, but I think the 
deepest meaning of the supernatural is the transformation from our false self, our egoistic, our narcissistic, and allowing that to die, and then, uh, in fact, being uh, reborn into our eternal new being of which Lewis and Merton and all of these people grappled with. And that's the deepest meaning of the supernatural uh, is that the divine breaking in, burning the dross of what we are not, so the gold of who we actually are will emerge. I don't know. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That's a good answer. Some people uh, answer that in all sorts of different ways. One, We had one guest on that said one time when they were in their room, uh, they looked up and they saw a half man, half lion standing in the room, glowing with light. It's <laughs> like, so, well, that's interesting. So you never know what people are going to say when you answer that, ask that question. Um, what are you, I know you're doing, you're doing currently doing a, uh, Linton series of Linton reflections on YouTube. Are you working on anything else at the moment? Yeah. So as we're, as we're in Ash Wednesday, I'm going over the six sections in T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday. Uh, so mm -hmm. I do one every week, get taped, and then I'm moving slowly into, um, T.S. Eliot's much more substantive, uh, work, which is really the summary of his great contemplative vision, the four quartets, which you can spend a lifetime, a lifetime meditating slowly on, allowing those images and metaphors to massage, massage the mind, the imagination. Um, and so, uh, so that's what I'm lingering uh, very, very much with uh, TLC. And as I said earlier, the last of the four quartets, Little Gidding, I lived at Little Gidding for a mm. time when I was at Cambridge in the 1990s uh, mm. as well. So T.S. Eliot, actually T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis were very good friends. Yeah, yeah, they were all, it was all sort of connected. Yeah, so I mean, in the early 20s, 30s, the Inklings mocked Eliot, and Eliot would not publish Lewis. Uh, but by 1945, Charles Williams said, listen, you two, stop acting like little kids and turning on one another. So he brought Eliot and Lewis together for a dinner at Oxford. Uh, Williams died the next day. But from throughout the 1950s until Lewis died, you couldn't separate T.S. Eliot and C.S. Lewis. It was Canterbury, uh, the church that asked Eliot and Lewis to do a revisionist um, uh, translation of the Psalms mm. to bring them up to date. And so the T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis friendship is another. I did a long, a long article on Lewis and Eliot many years ago. That oh, really? Looks, Again, you'll get people, you have the T.S. Eliot people and you have the C.S. Lewis without realizing, once again, these were very dear friends, like, yeah. like Griffith Lewis. And Just another question. Did did the, so you got Tolkien, Lewis, Eliot, Bede, Merton, all of them are sort of uh, in the, you know, milieu with each other. Was Chesterton in, how did they see Chesterton? Was he in there in any way in their minds? Well, yeah, he he like George MacDonald was seen as a forerunner or an antecedent. Okay. And Lewis had the great, great admiration for Chesterton. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, so people like George MacDonald, Chesterton, and there's others uh, who really anticipate in some ways the inklings. And so mm -hmm. they build they build on the work of Chesterton, the work of George MacDonald, and there's others uh, as well. And so, yes, Chesterton was very, very much admired okay. by Inklings, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for doing this. This was great. It was very helpful for me. Okay, and I've got my dear wife tapping on the door with my daughter saying dinner's ready, so I should okay. stay.
Well, all right. Thank you so much again. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, have a good evening. You too.